This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Julie Lithcott Hames sold Girl Scout cookies and later ran track in high school. She's often said that she feels so American that it hurts. But growing up black and biracial and as a woman, uh, Julie says that her identity was often questioned, um, not just as a concept of being an American, but even in the form of different microaggressions in which the very tone of even asking, where are you from, could beg an entire concept of of a review of one's identity. And she recently, throughout all of the successes of her career, um, reflected in a remarkable capacity by issuing um, her book, uh, Real American, a memoir of her journey from growing up in a biracial family to understanding what it means to be an American and to having that very sense of identity tested time and time again. As the descendant of a South Carolinian slave and her owner, Julie actually writes that um, she's so American it hurts, but today we have a chance to really understand what it means to be American enough. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Julie Lithcott-Hames, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Vikram, thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with just a very basic question, but something that has been uh, defined and refined for north of 225 years. What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be American enough in this day and age? Yeah, it should be a simple question in some ways. It's so complex, though. What does it mean to be an American? Well, technically, it means to be born here or to be born of people who are citizens. Although I think even that latter aspect of the definition is under a lot of scrutiny as people like Ted Cruz born outside the country um, to an American parent and a Cuban parent, uh, their citizenship is called into question. Barack Obama's citizenship born to an American mother and an African father in America was called into question. And of course, I too was born out of this country to an American father and a British mother. Um, but I, but, but I do believe personally, as though this has never been tested in the Supreme Court, natural born citizen means somebody whose first citizenship was American, as mine was, born to an American father on the soil of Lagos, Nigeria. Um, besides the technical aspect of what does it mean to be an American, um, an American, America is this amazing experiment in the history of, of world civilization, uh, an experiment still young an experiment still unfolding. And I think we don't yet know what America uh, will end up being. Um, but if there's one thing it means, it means a democracy. It means uh, a place that uh, welcomes all from other places uh, to come to a special land designed with different rules, designed to try to um, create a community where humans can be um, the most free uh, you know, this is I'm sort of heavily paraphrasing our founding documents, but our founding documents do speak of liberty and justice for all. Uh, the Statue of Liberty stands there with her tablet welcoming tired, huddled masses in a harbor from elsewhere. But, you know, over the course of our 200 plus years, 
we've constantly been interrogating what does all mean? Who do we mean when we say liberty and justice for all? Which tired, huddled masses do we actually want? And, you know, of course, being a person of color in this country, being African-American, having brown skin, I know that many in America don't think someone like me is really fully American, fully entitled to what America offers um, fully, fully worthy of the title of American. And it drives me crazy. And the rhetoric has been amped up in the last eight to 10 years. And I gave Real American uh, to the book as its title, because paraphrasing Sojourner Truth, I'm saying, ain't I a real American? I think I am. And I think really all of us are. And this concept that you that you flagged, um, which was beautifully stated, but specifically referencing the Statue of Liberty, there's not only this notion that being an American or being a part of this great experiment, building a more perfect union, is about letting others in, that diversity of thought, but it's also sort of the growth potential that we might have in this country, you know, without necessarily defining what today's American dream means, but this basic premise that that you can be better off than maybe your parents' generation was, and you leave a world better off for for your kids and their kids and future generations. So part of that means a sense of success. And I, I'm curious, you know, when you when you have this sentiment of feeling less than, you know, our audience should know that you know you've had an amazing career, including holding degrees from Harvard Law. Um, your your father um, was, and I and you speak about being incredibly proud of him. He was a a very high ranking appointee in a prior presidential administration, I believe the Carter administration. So yeah. when you, when it comes to that basic American premise of coming here from another country, but really investing and taking strides forward, many could ask, or many could argue, or interpret your life as having done just that. So why then, if you've quote unquote, met this concept of an American dream, why feel less than in your skin? Yeah, why? <laughs> why indeed? Why should that happen? How is that in any way just or fair? I am definitely an American success story. Thanks to um, the opportunity my parents were able to provide. My dad was born in 1918 in the segregated Jim Crow South in Oklahoma. Uh, was sent away to go to college out of the segregated South, went to Bates College in Maine, uh, was pre-med, went to Boston University Medical School, graduated in 1943, rose his way up on a very illustrious career, helped eradicate smallpox from West Africa, helped wipe that disease off the globe, but comes back to America um, after that project and is still subjected to the vile putrid force of American racism, as is the case often for male service or for service members, male or female of color, American forces, sure. when they go abroad or overseas to fight for the U.S., treated better overseas than they are when they return home, never fully seen as Americans. So I guess the point is one can be successful here as I have been. I am a, an upper middle class person. That brings me privilege and success. Uh, I have relatively light brown skin in the grand scheme of, of color here in the United States. I know that brings me privilege as well. And I guess I've written this book to say, and also, um, because you may think that means I've made it and I somehow have this amazingly um, carefree life. Um, I'm still an African-American in America. When I walk down the street, um, nobody knows that my father was Assistant Surgeon General of the United States. Um, nobody knows that I went to Harvard Law School. I am followed in stores. I'm called the N-word. I am um, 
treated as if, uh, you know, I may not be very smart and that kind of thing. So in the memoir, I've tried to detail these vignettes, these things we call microaggressions, uh, because we tend to poo-poo microaggressions these days. People uh, tend to say, oh, get over it. Oh, was that really as bad as you think? Oh, oh, oh. Well, yes, actually, microaggressions over time, to me, they they drip on my head like poison from a from a pipe above my head, and they threaten to distort me or contort me. And in this book, I'm trying to share the the a few examples of the microaggressions I've experienced, so that folks can appreciate that you know even when one has ascended to a certain class in America, when one wears a skin of brown, given our our historical and very present um, mistreatment. Um, uh, prejudice toward black and brown people, you know, that doesn't change, even though your class or your station in life does change. That's incredibly well put. And it, it actually begs a, a core question in which being American enough, it sounds like, you know, in many ways, uh, has very little to do with the meritocracy that we always think America to be that if you work hard, and you put in your fair share, then you can lift yourself up, that there might always be core to America's identity, these prejudices or these overtures that um, make an a priori judgment or snap kind of summation of a human based off of the way they look. And for a lot of individuals who maybe have never experienced um, negative treatment by the way they look or the microaggressions that you talk about, um, the vignettes that you paint are really, really important tutorials. I, I was curious if you could walk us through two of them. You, you mentioned to start this concept of fuzzy hair and, you know, an individual even just uh, approaching you, I believe as a young woman, fondling your hair in a meeting. I'm sure she thought, or maybe there are others who are listening to this who say, eh, I don't think it's a big deal. I see cool hair. If I'm a friend with her, I want to touch it. Walk us through as um, not only the children of a biracial family, but as someone that has probably seen this happen to others, what that truly means when it comes down to the rubber hitting the road. You're in a meeting, someone's fondling your hair. What does that feel like? Yeah, I'm in a meeting. I'm um, associate vice provost for um, undergraduate education and dean of freshmen, which is to say I hold a position of some authority at Stanford, at Stanford University. At Stanford University, right, right. I went yeah, to Berkeley, I but I won't hold you oh, against you did. that. Well, yeah, we won't hold that against, against each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. And it was uh, – I'm just trying to figure out how old I was. I think I was about 39. And the colleague who did this was not a young woman. She was a woman in her 50s, um, a white woman. And um, – I got to tell you, in my 39 years, a lot of people to the date at that point, a lot of people had touched my hair. A lot of people had found my shaggy biracial coils fascinating, so fascinating that they felt the need to come over to me and touch my hair and sort of pet me like a zoo animal. And the first thing that it does is it it makes me, I'll speak only for me here, it makes me feel exotic. Um, but one doesn't want to feel exotic with respect to one's fellow humans. It's almost a way of saying you are outside the definition of what I think of as human. I'm going to pet you like you're a sheep at a petting zoo. Um, we already have the stereotype heaped upon us that we are more like animals as African-Americans. And so when we are literally petted, when I am literally petted, it makes me feel that the person is kind of stepping across into that place. Um, of treating me like an animal. But the even more searing memory it summons for me, um, and whether it's memory or whether it's it's historical fact showing up in my mind as memory, 
Um, my my ancestors were slaves in this country in South Carolina, as you mentioned at the start of the show, and um, yeah, they were in Charleston, South Carolina. That's the harbor town through which one and two African slaves came. They were that was the Ellis Island, as Charleston is is really starting to acknowledge these days. Like it or not, it was their Ellis Island. It is our Ellis Island, and they would um, they would sell my ancestors at auction and. Um, they were naked on the stage in downtown Charleston, and women were were sized up for sale according to the ripeness of their breasts and the size of their birthing hips. They were regarded as animals who would produce more animals, their children, raped by their masters, uh, to, to perpetuate uh, slavery. And so when I am touched today by a white person I don't know or a white friend who's just so fascinated by me, by my look, that they can't help themselves, uh, as I say in the book, um, it summons a genetic reminder of being sized up at auction. And, you know, it's just inappropriate. We don't – we shouldn't be patting pregnant women on the stomach without asking them, is it okay and we shouldn't come up to black people and say, your hair fascinates me. Um, you know, I need to touch it. The, the thing is, they never ask. They just come to you and just with eyes wide with glee or fascination or awe, they begin to touch my hair. And it's creepy um, and it shouldn't happen. And of course, when we say something, um, the challenge is for us not to come across as the angry one, right? Our reaction is the one that's judged. You know, if right, I'm upset right. or angry, you know, I overreacted. Um, it is never the white person who felt that she had the right uh, to touch me like that who's overreacting in the eyes of, of fellow white folks. It's me who has to try not to be the angry black woman. And it, let me ask you what is probably going to come across to you as maybe a naive question, but certainly someone who hears this and, and disagrees um, may have the same question. And if we're trying to continue to try and forgive one another for historical injustices through education, right, what would you say to someone that says, well, you know what, I, I, I didn't grow up in a community with, with many black friends or individuals around me. I frankly have not seen um, a certain type of uh, person or interacted with somebody of a certain uh, ethnic background or ha you know holds these religious values to heart or has this type of hair. Um, I would like to educate myself. I would like to learn. Agree with you 100% that consent when touching anyone should be you know the front end of any dialogue around that. But if that person just wanted to experience a different world, would that not be an appropriate way to go about doing it? Um, we're all the other to somebody, right? There are folks who grow, plenty of folks of all hues and stripes and religions who grow up with the people who are like them and, and they don't see the plethora of the world's diversity in their hometown or their the community where they live and work. So we, we all, you know, have the, the natural inclination to find the other of interest, uh, maybe a bit of fascination, um, but we have to understand that humans don't want to be touched by other humans without consent. The way to the way to educate um, oneself about the other um, is not to go on a safari. <laughs> Picture this: picture the average white American family who's gone on safari in East Africa. Uh, they take photos of the animals. 
They take photos of the natives in East Africa, say Tanzania or Kenya. Then they come home and they print those photos and they put them in books and they frame them in frames and hang them on their walls. Imagine if black folks went on safari in Europe and took photos of uh, Europeans uh, hard at work doing their work. And in addition to the Parthenon and the various other, the Colosseum and the, the various other uh, architectural artifacts they may be there to see, they've taken pictures of the humans and now they have the Europeans up on their walls. Imagine, imagine that. I mean, that's just sort of a literal reverse. You know, many white folks would say, why do you have these pictures up here? You know, if black people said, oh, my gosh, they were just so fascinating. They were so interesting. You know, they were so warm. They were so friendly. The white people would say, like, what? You know, you're sort of exoticizing them. What did you expect them to be? They're just humans. Right. I mean, this is what we do when we we sort of treat the the Africans who might be driving the Jeep on our safari as if they too are somehow as exotic as the rhino and the lion and so on. Um, so to learn is to take an interest in another culture. It is to immerse oneself beyond the food, you know, beyond the videos. Uh, it is to do some reading, read some media that is not your normal media, read voices that are not the voices that just reflect your own cultural narrative. Um, you can go many places on the web and find uh, writings uh, by and for communities of color. If you're really interested in learning more, read a bit of history written by an African-American about the African-American experience. Read a bit of history written by a Native American. Read about the Latino experience. Choose to widen your blinders by consuming different types of media. Um, choose to to appreciate that your, whomever you are listening, your own cultural narrative is one of many in this country. And in this country, the experience of white folks tends to be, and has been for a couple hundred years, the dominant narrative, the, the lens, the voice through which American history is written, which is why we have a dearth of stories about what it was like for the Native Americans um, and what it was like for African-Americans and Chinese-Americans and Japanese-Americans and so on as they experienced what they did at the hands of white folks conquering land and people. So there is a way to learn. And I do think learning about one another is really essential. I think we're evolved enough as humans to be able to demand of ourselves that we take an enlightened interest in one another's experience. Absolutely. This isn't just about race and skin color. This is about class. You know, the folks with the dominant voice in this country are upper middle class um, and middle class folks and white folks. And um, and frankly, I'm using my position here of privilege in the upper middle class uh, to write a book. I have access to publishers. You know, I have access to an agent. I am trying to tell a story, a black story, a 21st century black story, uh, in part to do my tiny bit to contribute here to the broadening of uh, the voices that we hear about the American experience. And when you talk about the dominant narratives uh, that have consumed this country and, and frankly, a lot of the, the kind of cultural dynamics of this country in shaping American identity, one of the core questions that you also talk about, and this is sort of the second microaggression I was referring to earlier that I want to get to, a core question that you can get when there has been one dominant narrative that gets, um, whose culture gets celebrated, whose religious holidays get celebrated as part of the cultural zeitgeist. When you're not part of that dominant narrative, you get the query, where are you from? And you've yeah. described instances in which, you know, you've felt so American, it hurts. And yet when you get this question, it can kind of cut at you. Can you explain why yes. that comes up? 
Yes. And you've, you've uh, quoted that line, which is early in the book uh, a few times now, and I appreciate it because I use that line. I'm so American. It hurts to be the double-edged sword. We tend to say, I'm so fill in the blank. It hurts, right? I'm so excited. It hurts. You know, we're talking about a positive thing. I'm so this, it hurts. Like I'm so overly that. And so when I say I'm so American, it hurts. You know, there is the sort of positive of that, like, you know, all of the various institutions that I've been a part of and uh, the opportunities I've had and so on. And yet it hurts, meaning um, I have been treated by America um, <coughs> in a manner and by America, I mean by Americans and by American institutions in a manner that sometimes really has been quite painful. So it is very much intended um, as a double a double entendre, if you will. So where are you from? is the line that opens my book. It's in quotes. Where are you from? Here. No, where are you from from? I got that question from about as soon as I began interacting with Americans, uh, with children as a three and four year old. Um, um, maybe actually, no, that's a little, too, uh, probably a six and seven year old. You know, I'm in elementary school. Kids sure. are asking that. They're Second, also asking third, right. the corollary, what are you? Because my racial phenotype, meaning how my genetic, how my race genes express themselves in my skin and hair and body and you know, nose and so on, um, my racial phenotype was perplexing to many people. Growing up in the 70s, there wasn't a huge population of mixed race people as there is today. The Supreme Court casing, my parents' marriage was not illegal, Loving versus Virginia. That was handed down the year I was born. And so, um, you know, those of us who who are of color, uh, this happens to Asian folks all the time. Where are you from? Here. No, where are you from from? The white person is trying to say, you're not American. I can tell by looking at you. Where are you from? And the Asian person or the black person or the Latino or whomever can say, no, 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 I'm from Detroit. I'm from Chicago. I'm from Denver. I'm from Alabama, whatever the answer is. And they say, no, 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 where are you from from? And they're really not saying where are you from? They're trying to say, what race are you? Or what country are your ancestors from? But why do we do that to one another in a country that aims to be a melting pot? You know, again, the national rhetoric is about melting pot, is about diversity, you know, and yet there's so many people here who really desperately need to pin somebody down to what country they uh, used to be from or their grandparents or parents were from. And it's done because Americans, white Americans want to size up the rest of us and figure out where we belong on the ladder of worthiness to be an American, which is why we have the narrative about the Mayflower, right? And we have the Daughters of the American Revolution. Well, guess what? I was here, meaning my relative, Sylvie, was here in the late 1700s as we were becoming a country. Hmm. She was here. She made me a seventh generation American, as many, 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 many African Americans could claim if only they had kept records of our people, but they didn't because they saw our people as animals. Okay, through a whole lot of work, my brother Stephen walked through graveyards and walked through the back rooms of churches where records are kept and walked through county clerk's offices and traced us back to Sylvie on Church Street in South in Charleston, South Carolina. She made me a seventh generation American. I don't care what any daughter of the American Revolution wants to say about that. I am one of the original Americans, as are folks who are descended from African slaves. And we are tired of being told we don't belong here. And it's it's an incredible 
juxtaposition, right? Because in many ways, the the, the thesis of America um, and what it has uh, come from and what it is and what it can be is always defined as aspirational. Um, and in more recent memories, you know, hearkening back to to the role that your father had in the Carter administration, uh, you know, a later predecessor for him, for example, um, or sorry, not predecessor, successor, was most recently uh, Vivek Murthy, who was Barack Obama's Surgeon General. Um, his story would celebrate the fact that he was, you know, the son of Indian South Asian um, immigrant parents. Barack Obama would celebrate, um, you know, the the kind of the meandering path of his own identity um, as having a family in Kenya and yet being born to a single mother or well, being born and raised by a single mother in Hawaii. Um, and, and, and then you juxtapose that against someone in which you actually have a uh, person who says that, you know, he proudly comes as the son of steel mill workers, which has this very kind of vivid imagery of the American heartland. And so there's this moment in time, right, where we've always been this nation that celebrates um, coming from the root of America, the founding days of America. And then more recently, we have a lot of celebrated successes and stories of people that had a bit more of a meandering path into America and celebrated that being core to America's identity of, you know, giving me our, our hungry, your tired, your poor. Um, but even still, we have this terrible racial overtone. We have this terrible rejectionist sense of what it truly means to be American. So I guess I wanted to stitch all that together to say, does one story seem more American than the other? Is that the way that our identity is being crafted? That if you've come from within the generational upbringing of America versus coming in through immigrant families or other migration patterns, does that make you more American in the modern uh, cultural dialogue of this country? I think it depends on who you're asking. Uh, but I think the reality is that America is an, a nation of immigrants, that except for Native Americans, everybody came here from somewhere else. And over time, different groups were welcomed differently. I mean, it used to be that to be Polish or Irish or Italian, you know, was to be ethnic and to be relegated to a lower status. You know, but over the years, the concept of whiteness was invented to prevent the lower class Italians and Irish and Polish and so on from fraternizing with the lower class black folks, uh, newly freed, you know, this concept of whiteness. No, 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 you're white. You don't need to fraternize with those black and brown people. They will always be beneath you on America's ladder. I mean, that racism is based into, you know, our earliest moments. Um, so despite the fact that we have always been a nation of immigrants, uh, we spend a whole lot of time now preferencing some immigrants over others, right? Um, the whole concept of illegal immigration, no one's looking for all the Europeans that are here illegally, which there are plenty of, right? It's all about the folks from Latin America who are coming illegally. Um, so it, it really does depend on who you ask. And the answer really, I think, reflects um, um, often a white nationalist view or a racist view about who's really entitled to, uh, to this aspirational um, land called America. I love that you mentioned Dr. Murthy. I had a chance to meet him. Um, he was Surgeon General. Uh, my father was Assistant Surgeon General, so one step below the position Dr. Uh, okay, Murthy okay. held. My apologies. Uh, no, no, no. I just want to give him his due. Um, and um, uh, you know what a what a triumph, what a what a journey, what a wonderful thing it is that um, that that children of folks who fled other places or left other places on their own volition to seek a better opportunity, to seek education, to seek um, um, 
opportunities for success in the workplace, that that folks still find their way to America, you know, despite what America um, is really contending with by way of of anger and hatred and mistrust of our own selves. Nevertheless, we are still, still, even today, a beacon to people around the world. Um, and I know this is still true because I constantly take lift rides. I'm an author on a book tour. I'm constantly out across America. Sure. And I'm always taking lifts and I'm always asking the drivers um, how long they've been driving and, you know, where do they live and, and you know, um, uh, various questions. And I'm, you know, sort of like, where are you from? But not like a fascination with, you know, the, trying to categorize them, but more like, you know, did you grow up in this state? And, you know, they'll tell me and, and, um, and what they say, if they're not originally from here, many Lyft drivers are from here, but many aren't. And they'll say, uh, you know, I'm from Croatia. I'm from Brazil. I'm from, uh, Kenya. I'm from, you know, wherever. And I and then I say, why did you choose to come here? I said, because there there's no place that has the opportunities that America offers. And the fact that that is still the narrative out there around the world about this place gives me a lot of hope. Um, because when we live here, we spend a lot of time really worrying ourselves over uh, what's hard about living here. And that is an incredibly important point to highlight, which is that for all of our struggles and woes, the one thing that makes uh, you know America. America and appealing to to the, much of the world is that ability to come here, define your path, um, either invent yourself or reinvent yourself. In terms of like defining a path for oneself in this country, we we still do have. We're at a moment in time, um, and you know, you acknowledge this at the top that these challenges have predated just this current president. But you know, you've got individuals like Senator Tom Cotton introducing pieces of legislation that demand certain elements of showcasing how American you can be, how readily you would assimilate to our economic output in order to immigrate immigrate here. You've got our own president, Donald Trump, um, almost condoning the behavior of, of hateful groups, most notably and most recently um, in Charlottesville when it came to the group of neo-Nazi protesters. You've got um, Individuals like Richard Spencer representing white supremacist groups and the alt-right and other individuals, including, you know, former White House senior strategist Steve Bannon, really giving a lot of top cover to saying that no matter what you think American identity looks like to you, there are measurable standards. There was, There is a sense of idealism to what uh, the American makeup ought to look like, what are uh, what the jobs and the economies, who they ought to go to. So for all of the, the hope and the aspirational quantities that we do have in America, and that is very true and should not be overlooked, we're also at a point in our history in which a lot of people who have a very prominent platform are using that platform to really undercut or chip away American identity by saying it can only really be one thing or it ought to be confined in one way. What do you say to them? Yeah, I say they're behind the times and they're really describing, if it ever existed, they're describing an America that no longer exists and they shouldn't be frightened by that. And they are. Um, the white nationalist viewpoint is very concerned with the dwindling number of white births uh, and the birth rate being higher among uh, Latinos. Um, they do not want immigrants who are black and brown. They're really, really worried that that's going to fundamentally undo the fabric of America. Of course, those of us who are black and brown uh, don't see it that way at all. I will throw out an example here from corporate America and from higher education in the current day. 
most corporations um, worth their salt and, and most institutions of higher education have come to realize that um, the educational setting is better in the context of a college or university, and the workplace and the products and goods that it can deliver are better if a diverse set of people have come together to be a part of that experience. So corporate America, institutions of higher ed are not just sort of wanting diversity because it's quote unquote PC, as they like to say on the right. They want diversity because they know differing viewpoints around the table make better products and make better goods and contribute to a much richer learning experience. Why do we want America to be anything less than the most amazing place it can be? America in the 21st century, in a world that is truly global, must, must embrace diversity and must embrace the fact that a diverse set of people coming together is how we become our best selves. I don't know that the white nationalists will ever get there because their very credo is about whites being better. So they may never see it, but uh, their their numbers are dwindling. So w- what we have to do is is try to help them over their fear and their hatred. I think their hatred is based on fear of being less than or being seen as less than, of maybe being relegated to the bottom of some stack. Um, I think it is our imperative as a country to um, to help those folks um, look that fear in the eye and grow out of it. Um, Because if we don't, we will consign ourselves to being a country of whimpering white folks, uh, beating down black and brown folks, and ultimately the collapse of America um, would potentially ensue. And I'm using really, really stark apocalyptic language here, but, but boy, you know, when you look at the, the rhetoric on that side and the violence attached to it and the guns uh, owned by the people who articulate the violent rhetoric, it's scary. It's it scary is, as hell. It, it, it can and, be very uh, scary. And, and, you actually, and you actually point out in the book, you know, I wanted to ask, there is a there are those that may listen to this conversation and say, Vikram, um, you know, Julie, you guys are hyperbolic or overblowing a scenario here. Um, but there are very, very real instances that occur day in and day out um, on our sidewalks, in our neighborhoods, in front of churches, in front of mosques, in which just the way one presents themselves or is perceived can actually threaten their safety. Um, you talk about in the same way ta Coates has talked about um, fearing a little bit for your own son um, as a teenager, how uh, they may look to certain passers-by if they may not know that um, that passers-by's grandfather was an appointee in the uh, in the Carter administration in the same way that Barack Obama once you know, notably said behind the press podium in the White House that if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon Martin. Um, when it comes to the identity of being an American, there's a population of folks who have to deal with this perception that either routes them into a certain um, category when when other humans walk on walk by them on the street and it could frankly expose them to higher um, rates of risk when dealing with law enforcement or other parties that you know don't mean well and would like to see exert their ill will on a person how does growing up with that fear um, for you know your own son or frankly those in the community who um, wear another skin color that uh, someone else may never really appreciate or realize how does that shape their own version of being an American? 
Well, I think it was W.B. Du Bois who said, um, uh, your identity is in part how you see yourself and in part how others see you. And you can try to be the most self-loving, hardworking, uh, kind person you want to be in America, but that um, has no bearing upon how others uh, filled with hate are going to see you, judge you, and treat you when you walk down the street. You know, as you, as you asked that question, Victim, I pictured three men. I pictured the guys in, um, in Kansas um, right. the South Indian Asian engineers, yeah. yes, who were murdered um, uh, because of their skin color. Um, I pictured this lovely grandfather in Alabama, um, Mr. Patel. Um, I'm just looking up right now, see if I can find his name. It looks like it's Suresh Bhai Patel, grandfather visiting his family in Alabama, was walking down the street having a morning walk. Some, you know, good Samaritan called the cops. Um, and we have to tackle this issue of good Samaritans who call the cops on on black and brown people in their own neighborhoods. because They're not good Samaritans at all. They're racists hiding behind curtains. But this person called the police and said a skinny black guy was walking down the sidewalk and the police came and tackled him, really assaulted him in Alabama. And he was temporarily paralyzed. Now, the Alabama governor has apologized to the people of India for the severe injuries suffered by an Indian visitor who was basically treated like a black man in America. I love that he apologized. I hope this man is okay. I'm sad that this man was treated like a black man in America. But where is the outrage over how black men are always treated in America? Okay. Um, how others see us and treat us is a huge aspect of our um, ability to enjoy um, the promise of America. And here I want to make a detour to Colin Kaepernick and Beyonce, we seem to want, we Americans, Americans seem to want Colin Kaepernick to just put on a jersey and play football. And they want Beyonce to, you know, sing some songs and be beautiful and perform at the Super Bowl. But when Beyonce dares, you know, at the Super, Super Bowl halftime show to wear an outfit that evokes black nationalism, black pantherism, um, uh, she is told, uh, you know, don't do that. Um, we don't want you to have a mind. We don't want you to have uh, uh, an opinion here on what is happening to black people. Just shut up and sing. And with Kaepernick, it's like, shut up and play. Well, you know what? Colin Kaepernick is protesting the assault by law enforcement on black and brown men in particular. It also happens to black and brown women. Okay. And boys and girls. That's what he's protesting. He is saying, yes, I'm a highly paid athlete. I am a highly talented football player. And I am a black man in America, and that means I'm subject to being called the N-word when I walk down the street. This just happened to LeBron James during, you know, the playoffs either last year or this year. He came home, and apparently on his big, big mansion gates, there was a horrible sign. That's the, that's the paradox that is America. You can be Barack Obama. You can be LeBron James. And racist white people will unleash their racial hatred on you. They think it's funny. They think it's okay. And guess what? It hurts. And I wish it didn't. I wish none of this hurt us. And maybe our evolution as black people and brown people is to just not give a damn any longer what the white folks think. And in some ways, that will happen as we become more and more um, uh, toward, you know, majority in numbers, which is happening in America. That day will come when the brown people are the majority. And boy, I know that terrifies some white folks. But maybe when that time comes, you know, that the vile hatred of ignorant and racist white people will stop hurting us so they can be as, as hateful as they want 
and it won't matter. But the truth is their hateful views combined with the power they have, uh, you know, comprising the majority of police forces, you know, having more of the guns uh, means that their hatred plus their power can really equal violent death for for uh, people in our community. And that's what Colin Kaepernick is protesting. And that's what Beyonce is concerned about. And many, 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 many of us, far less, you know, famous than them, just us regular citizens, we're trying to speak out about that too and create compassion, uh, you know, for black and brown people in this country. Why can't we, and that's what Black Lives Matter means. Sure. It's not that, that we're saying we're the only people who matter. Hardly. We're just saying we'd like to matter too, which means we'd like our children to be able to go get uh, Skittles and a cold drink. We'd like our children to be able to play with a toy gun in the park as white children can without getting shot and killed. And, you know, uh, one final thought, I kind of want to vector into something that you said um, by, you know, pushing back just a little bit to be provocative here. I mean, there is one way this all plays out for our country in terms of refining and shaping American identity in which groups or enclaves, whether they're cultural in nature or or colored in nature, kind of retreat into their own or sort of only click with people among themselves. But one thing that you mention beautifully in your book um, and earlier on this uh, in this conversation was the importance to really get to know one another, to not really treat the human experience or the American experience as um, you know a Nat Geo episode or a safari, but to really take the time to stretch outside of your comfort zone, read the history of other people in your neighborhood, um, read the media that might be outside of your normal consumption patterns, introduce yourself and understand the, the challenges, the opportunities, the woes, the troubles of people that are surrounding you. So that way you can broaden your base of empathy and really get a sense of growth and ultimately hopefully inform what it means to be an American. I know that's a really, really big challenge and question, but in this last election in which it kind of felt that over 63 million Americans, our own countrymen and women, uh, felt empowered and, and frankly inspired by Donald Trump's message, and you had a population remaining in the country that was frankly shocked by that message and perturbed that it was elected into office, that message, those values were elected into office, um, there is this hyper, hyper, hyper need right now to do exactly that, to get to know one another. So how do you actually try and build bridges? I think that the fact that you've put out this memoir is a fantastic step in being able to have someone exposed to another way of thinking, another line of thought. But are there other steps that we can take to really get to know one another as we inform our own American identity? You know, um, one example that comes to mind um, here that is um, learning to more than tolerate, learning to accept uh, somebody as being your equal, whereas before you may have seen them as less than, um, is the LGBT community and uh, the laws regarding gay marriage. Relatively speaking, gay marriage uh, gained widespread acceptance rather quickly in the grand scheme of American uh, political progress. And many of us have scratched our heads and say, I wonder why that was. That is to say, um, how was that prejudice and hatred? Because Lord knows there's a lot of prejudice and hatred toward gay people and lesbians in this country and transgender folks. Why did that happen relatively quickly? And I, 
a lot of folks and myself included say, you know, because it's gay, people are everywhere. Uh, everyone has a gay relative. Everyone has a colleague in the workplace who's gay. Everyone has a gay friend because homosexuality distributes itself across the human population. They say at about the rate of 10 percent. Who knows? But, you know, you don't. Right. There is not that equivalent. No one. It's not like everybody has an Indian family member. Everyone has a black colleague or, you know, um, we don't all have folks um, who are ethnically and racially different than us in our immediate circles. And so therefore, we don't have the opportunity to bump up against them and see that, hey, they have children, they play tennis, uh, they work out after work, they're struggling with their uh, smoking, you know, that, that they have the same human issues that, that we have. And that's really what's required. Um, right now, many folks do not see folks of a different race as um, as, as human um, as they are. And that's incredibly dangerous. And so what is needed is uh, is a conversation uh, in the workplace, in homes, in communities where we bring different people together and, you know, with highly skilled facilitators, I think, and have these conversations where we can get to the fact that at our core, we are all exquisitely human. We all cry. We all bleed. We all dream. We all have fears. We all have children that we want to bring home safely at the end of each day. We all want to find love. We all want to find work. We all want to die in peace. And um, those are universal truths. Um, and we need to have these conversations. I got to tell you, I got people in my own family who don't want to have that conversation with me. You know, I'm married. Yeah. My mother's white. My father's black. My husband's white. Um, you know, I've got uh, Jews in the family, whites in the family, blacks in the family. As I say in the book, you know, I'm one step from, we're all one step removed from a white redneck and a black panther in my family. And if those conversations are hard to have by me in my family, I know they're super hard for everyone else to have um, in their families and in their workplaces. But this is where I think about Van Jones, who had a new book just come out uh, right around the time mine did. Right, I can't right. remember what it's called, Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart, How We Come Together. And, you know, he's trying to help Americans uh, be in dialogue with one another um, to uh, to get back towards seeing one another as humans. And I applaud that. I think it's fantastic. Um, it's hard. It's challenging. But I know when I engage someone who feels like a troll of mine on Twitter, someone who hears me on a podcast like yours and just says something mean in response, when I reply to that person and instead of being mean myself, I just try to kind of <clears throat> address the underlying thing they're saying. I have found, not always, um, that sometimes they will come back with nicer rhetoric. And then that person and I are actually in a conversation. And um, and I'll do that. I appreciate that. You know, I'm not here to try to convince somebody um, to see me as human if they think African-Americans are animals. I'm never going to win with that person. Um, and so what we have to do is try with the people who seem somewhat reasonable, who seem somewhat open. Um and those people exist in our families and they exist in our workplaces and they exist in our friend groups or friends of friend groups. And we have to be brave enough. And here's where I'm speaking kind of directly to white folks who think of themselves as woke white folks. You want to know what you can do? You got to use your woke whiteness and your white privilege to help open dialogue and conversation. We who are members of communities that have historically been marginalized in America, um, our voices are not heard. Um, we're not believed. When something happens to us, we're told, are you sure it happened that way? Um, don't you think you should give them the benefit of the doubt? We're always told to give the racist, the prejudiced person, the benefit of the doubt. How about you try listening to us and believing our 
narrative. Um, and then flanking us with your privilege to say, hey, I know him or her, I believe him or her, and I'm here to say with the access to influence and, and, and media that I have that I believe this person and I want to try to help them have agency here around uh, whatever has gone wrong um, um, in their life. Yeah, and the and the best way, as you said, to to help empower one another with that agency is to to start those discussions, have the audacity to sort of discuss the hard truths and and swap notes on the values that are informing those hard truths. And I think this book is a remarkably honest um, and and brave uh, start of that discussion in informing American identity. And and we couldn't be more proud of everything that you laid out there, Julie. Thank you, Vic. And what a nice thing to say. I appreciate it. You know, I'm an American studies major from Stanford back in the 80s, and I never knew then that I would become an author. But um, I love the fact that, you know, because of that history, the fact of my being interested in, in America and in Americanness and in the American ideal and the American dream as an 18, 19, 20-year-old, I love the fact that now at 49, I can remember that that was once the case. Uh, that is to say, I have been studying America all my life, um, both as an American, but as a student of America. And I'm delighted now through this memoir to have the chance to talk with people like you on wonderful podcasts um, such as yours is, and just you know have this opportunity to do what so many of us want to do, which is to help America be as truly great as it can be. And I may have a different definition of what that means than the current occupant of the White House. Um, but I know many, many, many of us uh, have the same uh, the same definition of that greatness as I do. Definitely. And, you know, I also, you mentioned in the book that you took a fifth grade trip uh, to, to D.C. and, you know, really saw the institution up close and you fell in love with it. You swelled with pride. I, too, uh, took an eighth grade trip uh, to D.C. Um, from California with my junior high, and I also swelled with pride. And so insofar as we have these hard discussions and we continue to try and nudge the dialogue forward, no matter how how much collateral that comes with over time, that's really the institution of this country that um, made you know the eighth and fifth grade versions of ourselves proud and will continue to make, you know, our, our future generations and our sons and daughters even more proud. So, Julie, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and talking about uh, what it means to be a real American on American Enough. Thank you, Vikram. I think we're all real Americans. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Theme music by Chris Thomas, edited by Mark Rako. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.